Forward, a Fiserv podcast, features conversations with the people moving financial services and commerce forward. Here's your host, Jason Hendricks with Fintech Forge. Passengers, please fasten your seatbelts because this episode of Fiserv Forward has some serious altitude change. Dave Mackinich, Senior Vice President Marketing, Strategy, and Product Management at Fiserv, and I start at a very high level about the concepts of open banking, banking as a service, and embedded finance, and what they actually mean. And one of the best parts about hosting this podcast is I get to ask the questions that I know the members of Alloy Labs actually want answered. Dave and I drop from 50,000 feet down to five as he provides detailed answers to how Fiserv embraced open banking and what that means for the future of financial services. Dave, excited um, to have you back on the podcast, especially around this, because with all of the banks that we deal with, talk about with Fiserv, Fiserv is a macro entity, has so much going on, and is such a big influence within the industry in terms of you're shaping where a lot of this is going uh, by nature of the choices you make. This whole concept of open banking, and you know, for clarity, we're going to talk about a little bit about capital O, capital B banking, and a lot of lowercase O, lowercase B banking. But why don't we start at the macro piece of this? Because those things get thrown around. So let's establish with you know Fiserv being an anchor of the ecosystem. When you know we talk about open banking versus banking as a service, embedded finance, and embedded fintech. Talk to me about what those things mean from the Pfizer perspective. Sure, and thanks for having me on. It's always great to see you and talk to you. Um, and you're right, I think it's probably sort of like a series of Russian dolls in some respects too. So was, there's sort of the macro open banking catch-all, capital O, capital B. And that's that I think started with the PSD2 sort of approach, or at least the, the approach that, this, that we've seen around the world that's really more focused on data sharing and data rights and access and user permissions and control and that sort of thing. And that I think is a very important piece of open banking in the sense that data and information need to flow freely through the system controlled by the user and by the financial institutions to enable the outcomes that they're looking for and to create really great user experiences for end consumers and merchants and everything else. Um, and then the way at Pfizer that we identify it is really more about the almost like lowercase o, lowercase b, which is the ability for us to provide a lot more openness within our ecosystems to allow third-party applications to communicate better with our either core system, digital surround system, card systems, et cetera, so that clients can really craft the user experiences that they want. And so fintechs can leverage the, the distribution and the access that Pfizer brings to the table, but in a safe and secure way so that you never have a third party that's accessing data that they otherwise wouldn't have permission to. And they're doing so with the consent, both of the bank and of the end user, and that we're trying to provide consent mechanisms that make it very obvious that that happens. And that's less about sort of a big regulatory push on that and really more about what we're seeing in terms of user preference and how the banks would prefer to do business. Can I just step in there? Because this is yeah. a really important point you just made, because 2007, EU enacts PSD2. And U.S. banks are like, that'll never happen here. We're not going to go change regulation in this approach and portability and open up banking. But what you've just described is Pfizer leading into open banking because it's good business. It's good banking. It's good for customers. It's good for the entire ecosystem. And I don't want that to slip away because that's a pretty big shift you know, for the industry and for Pfizer, frankly, right? Yeah, un unquestionably too. And I think that is a, again, that's where a lot of our clients have, 
you know, as you can imagine, that an install base as large as ours, you get sort of a multitude of opinions across the spectrum. But those clients that are flexing towards openness as more of a, a general strategy tend to be the ones that are thinking second and third order consequences of what's going on in the market, right? And they were the ones who were probably best prepared and probably already mostly finished their digital transformation when the pandemic hit. And so that just created another reason for a sense of urgency with some of the folks that maybe were, well, like they're not laggards by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly hadn't thought about digital transformation as a priority. Oh, um, you, so those you, things we, all conflate, they're sort of conspire to, to arrive us at where we are today. Yeah. You know, um, one of our banks, member of Alloy Labs that is a Pfizer customer, you, their head of digital transformation joke that they, you know, because of resource constraints and everything else, they, you know, had this five-year digital transformation plan that pretty much became the 2020-21 plan, like all condensed yeah. around, yeah. they thought they'd been thoughtful about it. And like you just said, that sense of urgency of we shouldn't have waited. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly enough too, like uh, PPP was probably the thing that made community banks in particular understand that you could actually accelerate a lot of that transformation. Um, and it's the Noah built the ark before the rains, not during or after, right? But in this case, a lot of our clients were building the ark while it was raining and managed to still get the outcomes they were looking for and then realize that you can, in fact, accelerate some of this stuff and do it cost effectively. But open banking has to be a linchpin of that strategy because to be able to do it all yourself with a single provider or in a monoline waterfall fashion is probably not viable in this market. You know, it just takes too long. So, and it's an important foundational investment and at the risk of giving listeners a little bit of altitude sickness as we drop from 50,000 feet down to five, let's talk about some of the specific initiatives that Fiserv has undertaken to make it really tangible in terms of, if I make this commitment strategically, philosophically, culturally, and that might be the hardest one, which is as a bank, I'm used to putting my arms around all of the data and I'm going to keep it safe in my vault. What are some of the things that Fiserv has done? If you don't mind starting, because when I became a Fiserv client for the second time, it was actually through the acquisition of Open Solutions. And the thing that two things that I had fallen in love with with DNA was number one, it's data architecture that you could actually get into it. And the second was the concept of the App Store. And talk to us about what's going on you know, with the DNA App Store for those uh, Fiserv clients lucky enough to pick DNA. Sure. Well, Luckily, you don't have to be a lucky Pfizer client that's selected DNA to get an App Store experience in the near-term future. So we've, we've sort of taken what we have learned through our experiences with DNA and the App Store there, and that, that ecosystem is very robust, right? And they've always had an approach to openness that, I mean, they were called open solutions for a reason. It was, yep. that, it was that embedded in their, in their culture. But secondly, we, we've gone through a process by which we've modernized all of our APIs in our other core systems. And... A substantial number of our surround system, credit, debit, channels, et cetera, and modernize those to the point where now we can expose them through a developer experience. And you'll actually be able to, um, and it's sort of a, it's kind of a two-sided marketplace in a sense, but developers can come in now and code off of our APIs uh, directly through our developer portal and not have to go through a professional services experience to unlock those APIs on a bank-by-bank basis and do very sort of monoline uh, implementations, they can actually gain access to our API libraries and actually code off of our APIs, regardless of what core those clients are sitting on. Um, and we've been, this is me kind of standing on the mountaintop after years and years of work to get us to this place. Um, 
and I've only been here for three years. So I get to spike the ball, uh, having carried it over the last five yards, but the team has gotten us to this place. And so that experience alone then seeds the opportunity for us to take what we, what you know is the DNA app store and move that into a Pfizer app marketplace. Yeah. So it becomes the app market now that is core agnostic Correct. in terms of what Correct. it sits on. Correct. And 380 apps have been loaded into that over the last 10 years. Curious, you know, do you know top of mind where some of the best uptake, are there certain categories or apps within it that, you know, banks are responding to, you know, without question? Yeah, I think, you know, tenure and longevity have a lot to do with it. So some of the apps that have been there for a long time have a, a really, really high take rate. A lot of them are focused early days on process automation, RPA, uh, and really sort of back office efficiency. And now what we're seeing almost exclusively is third-party apps from like very common names like Baker Hill uh, for say commercial loan origination, for instance, or Highland Software for ECM, or you know some of the usual suspects from that point of view. They're the ones that are now front and center in the app store because they're, they're adding incremental value in, uh, in many cases opening new revenue streams for our clients. And the key for us obviously is, um, you would have seen a, a release we did very recently about a relationship we have with a company called Future Fuel. Um, you've seen us recently also around NIDIG for crypto, and you'll start to see these even more frequently, street shares for small business lending. We're now building out a really robust ecosystem of third-party apps that we're making available to our clients that are allowing them to enter into new markets and offer new products which is really what they're trying to get us to do as a partner in, in the future. So let's talk about that for a second, whether it be NIDIG for the crypto, the street shares for small business, Future Fuel, all about loan repayment for uh, students. Student debt. Right, so it's available in the app market. I, as a financial institution, what do I have to do to get access to those things? Well, right now you, you would just go into the app marketplace, um, like literally click on the apps, very much like an app store experience in iOS or in salesforce.com's app exchange. Um, and then from there, we take those. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to usher people through that experience and kind of handhold through the developer experience. A lot of our clients don't have a large development staff on hand. And so saying like, here, here are all the APIs and here's how you do the implementation. You know, we need to actually provide some white glove service to them to, to do the integration and the deployment. But to us, that's, that's actually quite exciting because we do have lots of clients who do have a very robust organization. And, um, you know, Bank OZK is probably one of our, our favorites to talk about. Their innovation lab's phenomenal, great partner. Um, and they'll actually code off of our APIs themselves. So Dave, that raises, you know, an interesting question for the banks that actually are technically adept. And, you know, they've been building that as a foundational investment for their ability to, you know, build and maybe not quite startup like, but you know, are, are really able to kind of own and operate and build and produce. Talk to us about how the architecture has evolved because may or may not have heard this rumor, but you know, once upon a time, you, I wouldn't say that those who really drive things technically, when you look at the way that you know all of the big cores, right? This is big iron type approach. This was not SaaS and open, but you guys have made a fundamental shift architecturally there too. What does that future look like? Well, that's a great question. I think part of the reason why we made the, the architectural decisions that we did was in part because we were large iron, monolithic. You know, we have a number of cores in the banking space. And, you know, our, the average client, as an example, takes 37 
different products from Fiserv as they, they go throughout their customer journey. And so it was sort of existential in a way for us to make sure that we could modernize all of our APIs, specifically the, the technology stack in general, but certainly our, our API infrastructure to just make it significantly more efficient for the exchange of data and information throughout just the Fiserv ecosystem. And when we did that, we also then rewrote a lot of our APIs that we knew um, I could get really specific and tell you the exact number, but you know, there's a subset of APIs that are probably driving 95% of the use cases we'd ever talk about in terms of a third-party integration. And so we rebuilt all of those into hardened, exposable, RESTful services, microservices, and in many cases, event-driven microservices. So leveraging investments in things like Kafka for event streaming, for instance, being able to expose those to third parties, have them be hardened, and so that therefore you can you, know, you can ping those APIs significantly more frequently than you would if you were just inside the walls of Fiserv. And again, similarly to my my earlier comment, this is the combination of years worth of work to try and basically harden and modernize our infrastructure anyway. And exposing that to the external, um, the outside world at least, is not nearly that difficult relative to if we said, hey, we have thousands of these SOAP based APIs that we would need to go through, you know, do a dedicated firewall uh, project, do all these other things in order to expose them to a third party. And so it benefits us and our clients to have gone through that modernization program over the last few years. Um, and that's really how we, we thought about it is that we've made those foundational investments anyway, let's take it to the next level and expose those through a third party gateway. So that way, all of our partners can, can better interact with Fiserv and it'd be a lot a lot lighter lift for their development. Well, in one of the places that is playing out is in the banking as a service space, right? Where banks that act as a sponsor bank need to get the data from the fintechs that they're backing in and out of their core, right? And so, you know, back in the Perk Street days, that was a massive struggle for us. There was no core that could do it, but it's why we chose, you know, the DNA platform is we could do it not as an API, but as a flat file. That's changed. So talk to me, not just about the APIs, but how has Fiserv been able to really help some of your clients power the banking as a service movement? Sure. Well, I mean, you're 100% right. So APIs are a part of it, but frankly, all software is API driven, right? On some level or another. So in our case, it was really about taking the, luckily enough, we have a ton of banks that are really probably at the forefront of the BAS revolution. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, Cross River, um, Sutton, Meta, et cetera. And our clients are, are already thinking about how do, I, how do I deliver services to my clients? They're not thinking about how do I resell Fiserv as the bank as a service platform. And so again, those, those investments that we've made in the architectural backend have really enabled our clients to think entirely about offering those services up at the front end. And, and to us, that's really valuable as well because they're very self-sufficient. And they, fo- they focus less on how do I integrate this into my core? They think way more about how do, I, how do I provide these services to a fintech? Because Baz is really interesting because it goes in a bunch of different directions. It's not the way you would think about core processing as a, as a traditional brick and mortar financial institution. There's another set of tech players that are entering the market. And I know you, you joke with me about it. They're formerly known as banks. They are now more like fintechs that have their own charters. And yeah. I think, you know, you've called out Silicon Valley Bank and Cross River Bank are great examples. The, another one that really caught my eye is what Synchrony is doing and how they're thinking about point of sale. 
talk more about innovators like Synchrony and what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, well, Synchrony has to stay on top of, and they're they're such a large institution and they're in such a competitive market that they have no choice but to be as innovative as possible. And they're a phenomenal partner of ours. Um, and so the fact that they can, that we've sort of built this partnership with them where small businesses can access, you know, Synchrony's products and services and accept private label card payments through our point of sale system. I mean, that's a that's another example of sort of co-creation and co-innovation with our with our clients and with our partners. And Synchrony really that gives them the opportunity to to build out. If you think about just their traditional retail offering, now their their ability to expand into small business does kind of help them close the loop on the client relationship between personal and business, especially for the millions of Americans that run their own business today. Um, and so we're, we're very happy to be able to provide them the last mile and the point of sale solution through Clover. And that in and of itself then delivers great service for the end user customer and it creates a really interesting kind of perpetual loyalty loop as a result. You know, it, it seems like the pace of change was slow. So much was happening behind the scenes that had to be, you know, re-architected, rebuilt, you know, co-created with customers because use cases weren't always immediately evident. And now it seems to be happening quickly because what we're missing is how much work and foundational uh, elements were being put in place for so long. Is a closing question I'd love to ask, you know, as you look out in the financial institution future, whether that be a fintech that's backed by a banking as a service provider, or it's a bank that now acts like a tech provider or what the tech providers are doing and partnering with these institutions. I'm curious on two sides, you know, what do you think is going to happen faster than the market might possibly expect? And what do you think is going to take longer that we're in the hype curve phase of things that is going to take longer to come into kind of a, a true market level solution? That's a great question. And with and at the risk of, I should probably like apply just the obvious caveat or, or disclaimer maybe, which is this is, this is the opinion of Dave. Um, so take, take it for what it's worth. But you know, to, to me, I think the, the places where you're going to see uh, acceleration are to me a continued in the notion of embedded finance and embedded commerce. And the idea that I think um, specifically vertical SaaS companies that are already offering embedded finance and commerce are, are starting to realize that a partnership with a financial institution where the vertical SaaS company, for instance, is a platform where a, an end user might spend the vast majority of their day in that, uh, in that SaaS application. And that's how they run their business or how they run their life or whatever it is. But they need that experience to be anchored into their financial lives. And that really comes from the financial institution. It requires just the trust that the user has with their FI um, relative to the utility that they get out of a vertical SaaS application. So the melding of those two things together and all of the data that comes with it so that you can provide a 360 degree view of a small business owner and get to to the, you know, sort of like skew level data on an invoice or, you know, skew level data or point in time data on cash flow all in the same dashboard. I think that actually is going to happen a lot faster than Will realize where you'll be, you'll be able to run your entire life out of one application. On the probably takes longer, it'll be things like, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions and there's still a lot of kind of gunk in the system for, for to be scientific about it uh, around uh, crypto payments, specifically at merchant point of sale. 
And I think that yep. we'll get there. We will definitely get there eventually. But I think if, if I had to pick something that's hype, and by the way, this industry is hot for a reason, right? Because all of this innovation is happening at the same time and all of it has an enormous amount of economic value. But, um, but I think that's the more tricky one, just based on the fact that there isn't a ton of standardization in terms of on-ramps and off-ramps and rails for merchant point of sale and how a consumer can spend digital currency at point of sale or facilitate an account-to-account transfer at point of sale. And those are the kinds of things I think will take longer. Yeah, if anything, when the asset side of the crypto market became so overheated, it almost you know, it became this giant blaze that kept the hard work from being done on you know, these use cases around payments and these others, that if maybe it had slowed its roll just a little bit longer, we would have gotten some of those foundational things figured out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that's very prescient of you too, to, to say it that way. Because to me, that's the, again, if that takes longer, that might be a couple of years, right? I think that that's the pace and the rate at which we're moving at this point. And so um, the, the days are the day of the, you know, the famous person who spent 20 Bitcoin on a pizza, you know, at some point the, the asset and the volatility will settle down to a place where people feel comfortable or will move to some sort of stable coin or USDC uh, environment where you're, you're able to make those payments and not, and they'll be in real time. So you're not going to feel like you're either inflated or deflated out of a transaction. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your views. You know, the opinions are your own as you're making the forward looking <laughs> statements, of course. I'm not a lawyer, but I'll just add that one for you. But also appreciate the transparency around the places that Pfizer has been investing and where you're headed and what that future holds in terms of really opening up banking. And I think it's a fair statement. We talk about this quite a bit on Breaking Banks that open banking is really about also creating inclusivity and creating access to new services. And it's great to see a major player like Pfizer is really leading the charge on that. Well, thank you. And I re- we really do believe that a rising tide floats all boats. And, and our responsibility is to be here to make sure that we can help our clients participate in all this new economic revolution that's happening in the digital space. So thank you for the time. As always, Jason, love talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Look for future episodes of Forward at fiserv.com slash forward and soon on major podcasting platforms.